And today our scripture reading comes from Acts 22, verse 30 through 2311, and you can follow along in your little program. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently on the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived before God in all good consciousness up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees partly stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you may must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. All right. My name is Harrison. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. Um, we've been going through the book of Acts for quite a while. Um, we have four Sundays left of our series and we're picking up this week the story of Paul. Um, Paul, if you remember, had been a very Jewish man, a religious leader, and a zealous law-keeping Pharisee who was so zealous uh, for God that he persecuted the early Christian church, thinking that they, he was defending the true religion against heresy. But then Jesus appeared to him on the road, knocked him down, spoke to him, and Paul was blinded and everything for this guy changed. This man who killed Christians previously became one of the greatest witness to Jesus, essentially. A, a sent messenger of Jesus, an apostle to the Gentiles. And he, we saw him go to many Gentile lands to tell the good news of a savior of mankind who died and rose again so that we might have eternal life. He had been successful in, in some places, uh, winning converts, and then other places started riots and was almost killed. And now he's come back to Jerusalem, uh, which is his, his area, uh, where there was a false rumor going around about him that he was against the Jewish law. And remember how he responded to this rumor in, in past sermons. He said he decided to use his freedom in Christ to follow the law to show that he was for the law. But some Jews from Asia came in and disregarded all that, stirred up this mob and almost get him killed. And thankfully, the Roman leadership intervened, and Paul uh, begged this Roman leadership to be able to share his story with the mob. And uh, this is his story about his encounter with Jesus, and we saw that last week in Andy's sermon. Um, and it didn't go well, <laughs> partly because God told Paul many Jews wouldn't accept his testimony about Jesus. 
And Paul told them this, uh, and they did not like that. So then Romans pull him out again from an angry mob. They realize he's a Roman citizen, and now um, they've decided to take Paul in front of the Sanhedrin, which are the religious leaders of Israel made up of the high priests and Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, And they're trying to figure out the real reason why Paul is being accused. So uh, this is the same Sanhedrin that Jesus had been brought before, by the way, if you remember from the Gospels. So in this encounter that we have here, uh, we have kind of a subtle story about the deceptiveness of appearances. So my, my wife and I are big fans of the Great British Baking Show. Any Great British Baking Show people? Yes. Okay. Um, it's a TV show in which amateur bakers compete against each other to make the best cakes and bread and pedophores and all kinds of things. And then their bakes are judged by uh, a panel of expert bakers. And there's a theme in the show of style versus substance. So style is the appearance of a baked good. uh, And the substance is what's actually on the inside. When you cut into it, when you take a bite, what does it actually taste like? Amateur bakers, uh, if you follow the show, you might notice they struggle with having all style and no substance. Um, Meaning the outside of this cake looks pretty nice. But when you cut into it and bite, bite into it, something's very off. Uh, maybe it's got no flavor, tastes like pure salt because they forgot to add the sugar, or it's underbaked, overproved, it's got a soggy bottom, it's raw. The judges spit it out, they're like, I can't eat this, it's disgusting. All style on the outside, no real substance on the inside. To avoid this, my baking has no style or substance to get around, <laughs> so you know, you know what you're getting with my baking. Um, In our passage, we see this trend of style over substance is true among people, too. The Bible is clear that it's common to have style, uh, to cultivate an appearance, to wear certain clothes, to have a certain job title, reputation. Uh, Maybe you pray a certain way in front of others. Maybe you serve a certain way while people are watching. But if someone could look on the inside, if you could see how God sees, for many people, the internal substance is far different. There's rottenness in the core. And their style is merely a mask that hides the rottenness. And when someone's not on their best behavior, when their true colors show, you see it's not actually what you often see on the outside. According to scripture, uh, many people look alive, but are dead in their sins. And this can be even people in the church. All style, no substance. So in this story, there's a contrast that's drawn out between a man of poor style, Paul, who had no good reputation to speak of in Jerusalem at this point, but a lot of substance. A contrast between him and the Sanhedrin, who were the opposite of that. A lot of style, no substance. And seeing this contrast in action encourages the early church two things. One, it encourages them, you must seek true substance. Meaning, on the inside of your cake of your life, you must seek a clear conscience before God, sincere faith, an internal richness with God, true obedience and holiness when no one's watching. You must seek true substance. And second, you must see through style. You must be discerning and wise as serpents about others, especially these Jewish leaders who many in the church have previously looked up to, because, just because they have a job title or a reputation for holiness or act publicly a certain way does not mean they are holy before God. 
Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit. And what fruit do you see? So we must seek true substance. We must see through style. But first, before we dive in, let's, let's pray. God, many of us are coming in this morning uh, feeling a gap between who we appear to be on the outside and who we are on the inside. Um, many of us have moments where our cake is bad. We feel shame and we hide. And we ask this morning that you would meet us in there, that you would give us good news, help us see through our own style and that of others. And Lord, would you please give us true substance? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first we're going to see we must seek true substance. Look in verse 30 if you've got your worship guide or your Bible. Verse 30 here. Um, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, uh, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So so Paul's brought before the Sanhedrin by the Roman leaders, and he leads off with a statement of substance. He starts with not an external criteria, but his conscience before God. And And he says he looks intently at them, which is kind of to show them he's not lying. He says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up until, up to this day. And what he means by this is, guys, God as my witness, there's no game here. There's no ulterior motive that I have. I'm telling you the truth about my encounter with Jesus. My conscience before God is clear right now as I'm saying that. This statement would be very bold and dangerous to say as an Israelite if you were lying by bringing in the all-seeing God judge into it. Paul actually does this often in his letters, using his conscience before God as a witness. In 2 Corinthians 1, he, he says of him and his travel companions, he says, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behave in the world with godly sincerity and supremely so towards you. In 2 Corinthians 2, he says, We are men of sincerity, and we speak in the sight of God. Then in 2 Corinthians 4, he goes further and says, We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Meaning, I'm an open book. Please look and judge for yourselves before God if I've done wrong. Paul wants badly for the churches to know of its true substance. Largely, so they trust him, number one. There are many religious people with no substance who shouldn't be trusted, and we're about to see that in the Sanhedrin. So Paul's laying his cards down and saying, guys, in the sight of God, I'm being sincere before you, not like them. But can we really trust that Paul's telling the truth here? I would argue that Paul's life also bears strong testimony to the sincerity of his clear conscience. Think about it. Before his conversion, Paul had been a man of a lot of style. A leading Pharisee, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This all means he had a great reputation. He learned, he said, under one of the best teachers. He had a promising career in life in front of him. And one day, he gives all that up. 
He gave it all up for the life that we have seen him live in Acts. Uh, Being chased by mobs, being viewed as a madman for imprisonments, countless beatings. Uh, He says, uh, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less than one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food. The list goes on. Paul traded a promising, favorable career of style for an immensely painful, isolating, basically slow death. Why? The only possible reason is that he was knocked off his horse by a God-man named Jesus. The only possible reason is that Paul found a substance with God that was worth far more than his life of style had been. Paul says in Philippians, he says, For Jesus' sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, in Greek he then uses an expletive for poop. We have a word for that in English. He says, I count them as blank in order that I may gain Christ. Paul was a man who flushed his style down the toilet where it belonged and sought substance above all else. And that meant we could trust him. And so he appeals to that substance before the religious leaders. Another reason, second reason why Paul appeals to his conscience is that he's also setting an example for you. He wants Christians like you and me to seek our own substance above all else. Listen to what he says to his young disciple Timothy He says, the aim of our charge, meaning the goal of your Christian life, if you want to know the goal of your life, here's what it is, if you're a Christian. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So in other words, your ultimate goal is love of God and neighbor that comes from real substance. Love that is as true on the inside as it is on the outside. It's pure, it's sincere, with a clean conscience. Paul is saying, basically, you must seek substance above all else and a love that issues from that substance. Now, where did Paul get this idea? What good is it if you gain the whole world style but lose your soul substance? Jesus asked his disciples, Then Jesus says, so lose yourself, meaning lose your style for my sake. Take up your cross, your torture device daily, and follow me. Paul is just following Jesus. Now an important benefit of seeking and finding this substance is that Paul can be unanxious when being examined by someone like the Sanhedrin. He can say, my conscience is clear, I'm telling you the truth. Now I remember when I was a kid, uh, I was supposed to brush my teeth. And me and my brother got into the habit of wetting our toothbrushes uh, before bed at night because uh, our parents would come around and check to see if we had brushed our teeth. And I remember uh, the stress of wetting it, kind of making sure no one's watching, and then sneaking around uh, you know, afterwards and the anxiety of trying to get away with it. And then one day uh, we were asked point blank, did you brush your teeth or did you just wet your toothbrush by our parents? We had been found out. I had not sought substance, uh, just the appearance. As a result, I had bad breath and bad teeth. 
I also remember, though, that it was immensely relieving to be found out. There was just no more hiding I had to do, uh, no more anxiety. And it turns out, as it turns out, it was easier just to brush my teeth than it was to pull off the wetting the toothbrush. I could walk around freely with substance, clean teeth, and no more hiding. Psalm 32 is a song Israel would sing regularly about that very joy that comes when one finally drops appearances and pursues substance by confessing to God. It says, uh, For when I was silent, my bones wasted away, though through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And he goes on to explain that after he confessed, God became his real hiding place. And his tortured silence was replaced by shouts of deliverance. And though he had lost a little style, he became a man of joyful substance. I wonder, do you ever feel the anxiety of maintaining appearances before others? Of trying to portray constantly something that's not really there. Have you ever felt the peace that comes from acknowledging the truth, from clearing your conscience fully before God, the peace that comes from you confessing and walking free? In other words, do you know what it's like to be the same on the inside as you are on the outside? Can you say, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day? This is the aim of your charge as a Christian. You must seek true substance. I wonder what might it take for you to get to that place of peace and freedom today. So that's the first point we must seek true substance second we must see through style look in uh, verse 2 now go back to the beginning again with me here the response of the religious leaders to Paul's statement of substance and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth this is a clear violation of the Jewish law under which Ananias was supposed to govern Uh, Similar to all our laws, um, injustice was not to be done in court. There was to be no partiality or physical punishment until someone was convicted and sentenced. This behavior for Ananias is not unusual. Um, Jewish historians said that this high priest was a great hoarder of money who attained his high priesthood through bribes. Um, Once he was the high priest, he would command his servants to steal the tithes that belonged to the poorer priests and bring them to Ananias. Uh, and they were also commanded to beat those priests who wouldn't hand those tithes over willingly. And because of this policy, many old priests died because they didn't have enough food. Ananias was a man with an external appearance and title of holiness, but a wicked and disgusting substance on the inside. So after this smack, this act of physical violence, Paul speaks past the appearance to the actual man. He says, verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. This recalls a vision that God gave Ezekiel of false prophets. 
Uh, In the vision, these false prophets smear whitewash, white paint, on a broken, cracked wall, acting like that was truly repairing it. And God said, say to those who smear the wall with whitewash that it shall fall. I will make a stormy wind break out my wrath. There shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones of wrath to make a full end. And when the wall falls, will it not be said of you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? And I will bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel, in the vision, saw Israel as the broken wall that the false prophets were painting over, saying, there's peace with God. It's all good. And there was no peace, no real repair done. Paul here is adjusting that image slightly, says to Ananias, you are the wall, internally broken and cracked, but smeared on the outside with white paint. You're all style and no substance, and God's flood is coming. God will strike you. Paul here is actually cursing Ananias, something that a prophet who spoke for God could do. And it actually came to pass. Ananias was historically assassinated violently by Jews who hated him. Paul cursed Ananias, and God did strike him. If you remember, Jesus likewise called Pharisees like Ananias whitewashed, but he didn't call them walls. Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Paul Paul softens the blow a little bit for Ananias with his image. Jesus did not soften his blow. Let's continue. Verse 3. Paul then continues, Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Paul is pointing out the hypocrisy of Ananias' lawlessness as a judge. Verse 4. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, some interpreters of this verse see this as Paul actually apologizing, going back on his curse. Um, But actually, I think this is pretty unlikely, and most commentators do. Uh, Paul knows who Ananias is. Paul was a high-ranking Pharisee himself, and this is the high priest. It's much more likely uh, this is a subtle, humorous statement on Paul's part. Uh, We often miss humor and and irony in Scripture, and I think Paul has a slight smile on his face when he says, wait, there's a high priest here? I didn't know. I don't see one. Otherwise, I wouldn't have cursed him. He's continuing to speak right through the appearances. I would have never imagined to be smacked on trial by a high priest. Isn't that odd? I'm so sorry about that curse, guys. Now, continuing in verse 6, the rest of the story shows more of the Sanhedrin's true colors. Uh, Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between Pharisees and Sadducees. The assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So this was a big theological debate between the two parties, and Paul was right in the middle of it, the same as Jesus was in the Gospels. 
Uh, verse 9, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party st- stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to, to go down and take him away from among them and force, uh, by force and bring him into the barracks. Now it's unclear whether Paul was trying to really bear witness here about the resurrection of Jesus or if he was shrewdly just trying to pit them against each other to get out of there. But either way, the point of the story is showing the true colors of the Sanhedrin. Not only were they outwardly violent uh, towards Paul, God's messenger, the most religious Jews in Israel, the most outwardly religious Jews in Israel, were violent towards Paul, but they were also violent towards each other. They live out in this story the exact opposite of Jesus' summary of the law. Love God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. Instead, they're violent towards God's apostle and messenger. And then love one another as you love himself, as yourself. Instead, they are violent towards even their, their brothers on the council. The imagery that we see is of a pack of wolves. Paul is almost torn to pieces. Has to be removed from among them by Romans. Now, if you're in the early church, the story is a strong caution to many who previously looked up to these guys to say, you got to see through the style. All is not what it seems. You have to be discerning. Remember the, the story of Saul and David in the Old Testament? Saul was the, the tallest man in Israel, from his shoulders up, taller than everybody else. From a, a wealthy father, handsome guy, he was the obvious people's choice for the king. But as it turns out, his inside did not match his outside. He was a terrible king and did a lot of wicked things. And then after Saul, there was God's choice, not the people's choice. At the command of God, Samuel shows up at Jesse's house to anoint a true king from among his children. He sees the oldest son, and he's like, surely, this is the guy, right? And God says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Jesse has six more sons passed by Samuel, all of which God rejects. It seems like the family's a dud. Samuel asks, is that it? Are there any others? And Jesse says, well, there's the runt, out tending sheep. I guess I could bring him in. And in comes little David, the greatest king Israel would know besides Jesus. And the Lord says, arise and anoint him. He's the one. David was a little boy of no style, but he was a man after the Lord's own heart. And Israel, remember, if you remember the story of Israel, they were the fewest of all peoples, no style, insignificant on the map of the ancient world, yet beloved by God. And if you remember the early church, according to Paul, consisted of those not wise according to worldly standards, not powerful, not of noble birth, actually low and despised by the world, yet beloved by God. God's people are usually a lot of substance, no style. In fact, God intentionally chooses people with no style to show that he's the one who gives the substance. And if we're going to be like God and like Jesus, we have to learn to see through style. So I want to pause here and just have you actually look around you at the people sitting, sitting next to you, 
sitting in front of you, sitting behind you. Take a second to look around. As you do, don't think about your neighbor's physical appearance. Don't think about their height, their skin color, their hair. Don't think about the clothes they're wearing, how they want to present themselves. Don't think about that neighbor's job or money or house. Think about their heart. Try to see their substance. Keep looking around, keep looking around. Try to see their substance. Try to see them as God might see them. I wonder what a community would be like who viewed one another always like this. What would a community be like who spoke to one another just by our first names? No titles, no accolades. Who showed no partiality at all towards or against rich or poor, married, single, beautiful, ugly, young, old, thick, thin, black, white. What might it feel like to be part of a community like that? Now, also, think about as people are looking around, how did it feel to think of your neighbor trying to see your substance? For some, it might be finally freeing. Someone's actually trying to see me, yes. And for others, it might have felt terrifying. There's something there I don't want you to see. Look at my appearance instead, and let's relate from here. If we're honest with ourselves, um, a lot of us may also like to be fooled by our own appearances. Uh, after you go shopping, you look in the mirror at your cool new clothes, and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm that confident person right there. Look at me. You want to believe your new job title on the wall beside your office. You want to believe that your public persona is who you are. Because you might be afraid of what's past that appearance, that scared little person hiding underneath all that. The problem with this tendency of ours is if we keep to appearances, we'll never get what we're truly longing for, which is to be fully seen, fully known in our substance, and then embraced and loved. That's where the magic of relationship is. Do you really want to die without ever having that? The thing with God is we actually don't have a choice. He sees through those externals. And what matters to him is what's on the inside. So that's what should matter to us too. Now this doesn't mean that titles are all wrong. No one should have official positions or no one, shouldn't be, no one should be treated with respect because of their official positions. David, uh, remember, showed great respect to Saul because of his anointing, even though he wasn't worthy of it. Um, God commands this respect of positions in the Old Testament law. And Paul, is actually, he actually cites it in our passage this morning. Um, so we should still show respect But the key is, you shouldn't be naively fooled either by those titles or positions, or our own titles, or those of others. We must see through style. And the question this all leads us with is this, how do we get that true substance? I want to answer that by pointing out something else kind of subtle in this passage. Like many other passages in Acts, Luke is drawing parallels between Jesus' actions and those of the early church, to show that the early church filled with the Holy Spirit is the same as Jesus. Do you notice any parallels in, in our passage between what Paul goes through and what Jesus went through in the Gospels? Remember, uh, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin on trial. And John, John's Gospel says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered them, subtly like Paul, I have spoken openly to the world. 
I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why then do you ask me? Jesus was seeing through even the appearance of the question. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said is right, why then do you strike me? So Jesus here turns the tables, puts them on trial, says, Come on, guys, let's drop the appearances. You ask me questions, you hit me. If you already know the answers, have nothing real against me, why are we here? Their silence to that question implies because your inside doesn't match your outside. And your inside is wicked and totally contrary to God. What happens here with Paul is so similar to this moment in Jesus' life, even the striking, the subtle answers, the contrast between style and substance that comes out of that. But they end differently. Uh, Jesus does not get pulled out of that moment by the Romans. He refuses to give an answer that would set him free because we know like a sheep led to the slaughter is silent, Jesus' intention was to be nailed to a cross and to hang there until he died. He was a man with the most beautiful, precious, internal substance in the universe, and he intended to drain it empty, to suffer and die at the hand of God as if his substance was the worst possible of mankind. And here's the good news of the gospel. The reason Jesus did this was that he looked at you parading around as a whitewashed wall, a whitewashed tomb. And he looked through your appearance and saw your vile substance. And even in that moment, while you were dead in your sins, Jesus' heart broke for you and he loved you. As a result of that love, he chose willingly to drain his substance that it would be used to give you life again. He took the wrath and the death that your hypocrisy, your hiding, your vainness deserved. He filled his body with that in order to fill your body with his faithfulness, his goodness, his sincerity, his life. He made that trade, and then three days later, defeated death, sent out witnesses to tell the world any bones lying in whitewashed tombs can be brought back to life and can be given the righteousness of God. Actually, we get what we've always longed for, fully seen, fully known, fully loved and accepted because of him. That's how we get true substance, through Jesus. So for those of you who don't know Jesus in here, don't you want that to be true? Wouldn't you want to experience the full acceptance and love of God? This is the grace of God that's on offer for all of us today. For those of you in Christ now, this is your reality today. God accepts you and there's no appearances needed. And even more than that, your union with Jesus and his substance enables you to begin flushing those appearances down the toilet where they belong and seeking true substance in practice. To begin, you can begin to be truly sincere and pure, and good, with a good conscience before God, we can live that way by the Spirit today. So I wonder, will you taste that freedom with me today? Let's start doing so as we come to the table. Amen.